everybody. It's Brennan, and uh, we have had a lot of awesome guests in season one of Dead Headspace, and we've learned a lot from them. And one piece of information we've kind of taken away is from the great Gabino Iglesias, who says, when you put out a book or a story or any piece of art into the world, nobody's really going to care about it unless you make them. So with that in mind, Patrick and I would like to share a couple pieces of upcoming work that uh, we'd love for you to check out. So first things first, January 11th, the anthology Shiver, edited by Nico Bell, is coming out. And it includes a whole bunch of really, really awesome cold weather horror stories from people like Jessica Guess, Stephanie Raybig, Steve Stred, And I've got a story in there as well called A Shine in the Woods. That's January 11th. You should definitely check that out. My story will be in a anthology called Campfire Macabre, edited by John Braille and Joe Sullivan through Cemetery Gates Media. It's five different themes, spook houses, supernatural slashers, witchcraft, within the woods, and cemetery chillers, with authors such as Andrew Cole, Haley Piper, V. Castro, Tim Wagoner, Sonora Taylor, and so many more. I believe there are 56 authors in total. Uh, the stories are about, I believe, a thousand words, give or take. So there's a lot of stories you can read in one sitting. Campfire Macabre comes out the second week of January 2021. We hope you enjoy both books. So we hope you enjoy both of our stories. Whether you do or do not, well, let us know what you think. Welcome to Dead Headspace. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Ghana, and all other major platforms, which will include YouTube. There are two episodes left in Season 1. Um, season 2 launches January 18th, 2021. Along with that will be a website, as well as a YouTube channel, where you can watch the video versions of season one, most of Season 1's episodes, along with uh, every season after that. I am your host, Patrick R. McDonough, and alongside me, as always, is my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello. And tonight, we're doing something a little bit different, a roundtable titled Faith and Horror. We will get into the reason why pretty quickly. But before we do that, I'd like to introduce who we are joined by, uh, Mr. Ronald Kelly. Say hi, Ron. Howdy, y'all. And this was actually Ron's idea to do this episode. I thought it was great. So I said, uh, yeah, let's do it. And uh, I think he was the one that suggested the next guest, which is John Quick. Hello, hello. Followed by Miss Mercedes M. Yardley. Hi, nice to see you guys. Hey. And Todd Keesling. Hi. So, hi, Todd. First question. Hi, guys. No one wants to say hi, Todd. Okay, rude. <laughs> hi, Todd. 
So we will <laughs> let's start with the first question. Whoever wants to jump in first, go for it. But uh, I don't know how to word this any better than what is your religious belief? So we'll start with that just to give a little background. Uh, Mercedes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. I'm super distracted by my family. Hello. We're all in quarantine and we all live right here in this room pretty much. Um, <laughs> so I uh, was raised um in the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, which is, um, most people know as Mormons. Mormons is kind of like, you can call us a Mormon, but it's like calling a, a woman walking down the street a chick. You can do it, but it's not right. <laughs> um, and so I grew up, um, we're Christian. We believe in Jesus Christ. We go to church every Sunday. I grew up in a very small area in Utah, so everybody was pretty much a member of the church, and if they weren't, um, they were a little bit ostracized. I grew up not active in the church. My dad rode a motorcycle and had tattoos and long hair. And so we were ostracized um, for that. And so I have kind of a I, – I am still um, active in, in my religion. Um, but I believe in the doctrine of my religion and not in the culture in Utah of my religion. So if I can take the people out of it, I've got it. <laughs> <laughs> but the way that I was raised and the way that the town is, it was very, um, I, I still can't dance because I was like a super white, you know, Christian girl and your body's not supposed to move when you dance. You can just like, <laughs> there's no, no sway, no shaking, no, nothing sexual. So, um, very, very conservative for me. Interesting. Uh, Ron. Interesting. I don't know. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I'm sorry, or no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, I was raised uh, in the Church of Christ as a child, and uh, and went there for about uh, until I was 18, and then I left the church, and we pretty much didn't step back into a church until I was 31 years old, and uh, then became a uh, Southern Baptist. So. But I'll tell you a little story about this, and, it, and it, it's kind of connected to, to why I left the church and why I probably eventually I became a horror writer. Um, when I was 12 years old, we had a, the seventh and eighth grade Sunday school had a had a cookout at one of the elders' churches. I mean, elders' homes. And uh, since my dad worked in Nashville, he um, um, we only had one car. At home and so it was late I was like there getting there so um, uh, the other kids were out there eating hot dogs and stuff and and the elder said come into the house I need, I need to show you something so so I went there and, and he took me down to the den and he turned off the lights and started started this slideshow and it was it was pretty much about uh, uh, judgment day <laughs> and um and it was pretty. Uh, I mean, for a twelve-year-old boy, it was it was pretty horrifying. So, I mean, you had uh, you had bodies, you know, the ground breaking open and bodies shooting up like missiles into the sky, and and there was like uh, angels, you know, coming down with you know like some with trumpets and some with with flaming swords, and 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 there's like families cowering in their basement and everything. And, and uh, and then there there was one slide where uh, Jesus, who was about the size of the amazing the amazing colossal man, was ripping the <laughs> ripping the roof off a, a house, and and you know there was like a uh, a family cowering there. So after after that slideshow, you know, 
I went outside and I had me a hot dog and a Dr. Pepper and, and, uh, um, but you know, it was, it was at that point I, I, I saw that, you know, you know, this church was just trying to scare me, you know, yeah, they were trying to scare their youth into, into converting over to, you know, to, you know, getting baptized and, and joining the church and everything. And, and, you know, it, it really disturbed me, even at that young age, 12. And so so when I become 17 and I knew I wanted to be a writer, um, uh, I knew that if I was going to write, I, I couldn't be a writer and a write effectively. And uh, if I had to walk that golden tightrope over with hell yawning on both sides of me. So, so, um, so. You know, that's why I left the church, you know, when I turned 18 and and uh, and when I met my wife, Joyce, you know, we started going to church and and I, I regained my faith and, and, and become a Baptist. Well, I, I want to say it's interesting, but Mercedes might laugh at me. Um, John, how about you, man? Uh, I actually started where Ron ended up. Uh, I was born and raised in a Southern Baptist church. Uh, my dad was actually a deacon in the church. So it was every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. I didn't have a choice. I was in church. So kind of like Ron said too, at around 18, 19 years old, I walked away from it and mine wasn't so much for any one thing that hit me. It was just, I was getting to just tired of it being crammed down my throat and so i kind of explored some other things i mean i i looked into various other religions i actually was a practicing wiccan for a while and once i got in my early 20s and uh my wife angie and i got together and we had kids and that was kind of i also rediscovered my faith and while i'm still technically a member of a Southern Baptist church. Uh, I've got to agree with Mercedes on this kind of, I, I believe the, the teachings, but the people kind of leave me a little wanting. Cause you know, I'm the one with the long hair, you know, <laughs> I walk in the church. I'm the only, I've got hair longer than some of the women in the church. So that <laughs> automatically sets me to the side and I get the, I see the side eyes and stuff like that. So, but it, and my faith has changed some as I've gotten older and understand it more Mm. and kind of have personalized it more things. What I feel, uh, the truth behind what I was being taught was as opposed to just, Oh, I have to do this because this is what they told me. No, here's what the broader scope of it is. And that's, that's kind of where I've ended up today. Hmm. Nice. Todd. Uh, so yeah, Todd. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Todd. Uh, no, like uh, like John and like Ron as well. Although uh, where John or excuse me, where Ron ended up, I started in the Southern Baptist Church as well. I grew up in Kentucky. Uh, I guess I was forced to go to church for most of my young life uh, until my teenage years when I really got some sort of autonomy and made enough of an argument not to go uh my parents still did my, my mom actually is a, a gospel singer um which uh cause is cause for some really interesting conversations over dinner <laughs> um so teenage years really moved away from it because everything that i 
everything that I kind of saw wrong with the people I grew up with, with people I went to school with, all the people who were jerks to me, they were all really devout in church. And, uh, you know, most of the people who kind of had any stature in my hometown um, all went to church and were all really devout Christians. So I started to really distance myself from that because I didn't want to be like that. And I figured I, I would rather, you know, try to find my own way. And um, I gave it one last shot. Uh, and this is where I kind of I've, I've had conversations with Mercedes about this over the years. Um, I dabbled in the uh, in LDS, uh, Latter Day Saints, for I would, I would cap it about a year, uh, my first year of college. Uh, I did it for stupid reasons, uh, for a girl (laughs) and, um, obviously that didn't work out, but, you know, beyond that, I mean, taken in by the, just more the, the promise of divine reward as opposed to, you know, uh, the condemnation and damnation if you aren't devout. Uh, but some uh you know bad experiences there uh ultimately led me to just drop out of it altogether i had my name expunged from the records and all that jazz and i have been pretty much uh living a life uh, of peaceful agnosticism ever since uh, i hesitate to fall in the line of atheism because i i'm not i believe that it's really impossible for us to know and there's you know really no i can't say for sure that there is no god but i also can't say for sure that there is uh instead i'm more focused on living the best life i can as opposed to living for you know divine reward essentially the theme i i kept hearing come up um is that whole idea of teachings versus culture. And uh, Mercedes, I think you were the first person to bring that up. Uh, the thought I kept coming back to is the idea, now I grew up in Massachusetts, um, and uh, Patrick and I, speaking for you, sorry, man, but uh, we both grew up in the Catholic Church. Um, and I think it's probably a universal experience, but I don't know, I, just, I guess I just have such uh, vivid visions of the parking lot of the church after mass gets out um, where the same people who shook your hand and said peace be with you uh give you the finger to get out of the uh parking lot first um and and i feel like that's um again that's it just seems to be such the universal experience you know even though uh three of you are in uh, or at least were at some point in the same kind of hub of the country, um, crossing over with you know certain denominations and things like that. We all kind of see that same um, human side of it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, Mercedes, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. You know, you talked about the culture. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I I would love to talk about it. So. Um, the tenets of our church are very different. Like I had never heard of the rapture until like, I think I read like the lost behind series when that came mm-hmm. out, or whatever. And I was like, what is this? What, what is this? Like I had never <laughs> heard of this. I was like, people just like disappear and planes fall out of the sky. And um, 
in in our religion, we have a very kind, we don't have a, a, a condemnation, you know, like, yeah, you know, hellfire sort of thing. And like Todd said, it's more divine reward. We call God our heavenly father. Like we pray to him. He's a kind and loving God. I don't understand this, like, you know, um, New Testament angry God. I'm reading in the Bible, the Book of Mormon tells talks of him as much kinder and stuff like that. But like where I grew up, everybody was LDS, right? Everybody so you would go to church and the kids that were drunk at the party Saturday night, the night before are the ones that are up there passing the sacrament, blessing the sacrament. And it was, it was really, you're in, you're in school and you knew that everybody and almost everybody in like my school was a member of the church. People that tended not to be tended to go to a different school because there were so many of just, we all just were right. Whether you were active or not you just were. And so everyone had these expectations. Like number one, we didn't date till we were 16. That was just a, a rule in our church. So like the second it was your 16th birthday, you you had like six guys knocking on your door because they've been waiting for someone to finally turn 16 because they've already dated everybody in this really small town. And it's finally someone new, right? It's fresh blood. They're so excited, you know, and we weren't from that town. So I wasn't related to anybody. So that was great. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that's it's almost like you're talking about Kentucky. Almost. Okay. <laughs> but but there's this expectation, like everything in the the way it's presented in Utah and a Utah, it's very different in Utah than it is now. Like I live in Las Vegas, and it's a very different experience being a member of the church here in Las Vegas than it is in Utah. Because in Utah, the whole thing is, you know, that for their meetings everything has to look really great. There have to be perfect refreshments. You have to, you know, when you're having a meeting and when we all get up and we teach, we don't have paid preachers or anything. It's members of the congregation that take a turn to teach. Like when it's my turn to teach, well, I'd better have like, you know, the table laid out and I'd better have like a really pretty tablecloth on it with flowers and like a really great object lesson. Cause that's how it is here. We can be reading it off our phones and it's still accepted, you know, but up there, everything is to a really almost unachievable standard, right? And you need to do this and you, you shouldn't shop on Sundays and you shouldn't. And if you do these things, you get the side eye. But it's so frustrating because everybody does those things. And so it's like you can't win. <laughs> you can't do it right. Whereas here, I'm in a very diverse ward. There's a lot of poverty in my ward. It's ward is our like our little denomination is, is a ward. It's how we're um, but wards, stakes how we're organized. So my own little ward is like very different than a ward in Utah, very hard scrabble, very, very humble. People can, you know, can show up in shorts and that's great because that's what they have. Whereas in Utah, like, Oh, you should be wearing a dress, you know, you should be this. And it, it's frustrating. I'm sure it's like that everywhere, but the things that people were saying versus the things that people were doing. And I'm like, show me in, you know, scripture where it says I have to have the stupid freaking tablecloth and they can't show you that, but that's just how it is. You know what I mean? And I'm a big, show me where it says that because otherwise we can let the stupid stuff fall. And I, I found it very, I don't know. People weren't dressing well enough to be able to go to the wards in Utah sometimes, or people weren't, you know what I mean? And I'm like, that's not how a church is supposed to be. That's the, the tenets of my church say nothing about that, but the people in my church are just being jerks and bullies and pushing people out so that's one of the that's what i noticed um i just want i wasn't planning on saying this but i'm gonna add to uh, what brennan said earlier i'm sure his experience was the same as mine and 
it's like we all grew up in the same town basically um i as a irish kid from uh south massachusetts was surrounded by catholicism it's same thing that's why i don't i'm not practicing haven't for a long time um it's just my my paternal grandmother she was a saint she really was and uh she went to church all the time but uh I don't know. I think when she passed away, I was like, I don't have to pretend anymore because I didn't want to upset her. But I still, me personally, I believe in Jesus. But it's weird. It's like I feel like he's this – and I'm going to word it this way. He's this world savior. But there's a part of me kind of like Todd where I'm like, but that's all I know. I don't – I've never studied any other religion. There's – I don't know how many, but there's been many. Reli- what wasn't Catholicism like the first religion to have a to be monotheism? I, I could be completely wrong, but I'm, I'm I I don't know. There's been a lot of religions before Catholicism, so why weren't any of those right? So that's my input. I can relate to all you guys, and it just seems like it's a people thing. Like mm-hmm. I I got sick and tired of the same thing. Like if you're a jerk, don't pretend you're not a jerk and you're going to pay money in that little uh, gift basket or whatever the thing is or the collection basket just so you can act like you're not a jerk that that's my that's my two cents actually i you know they just tithe another 10% so it's okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> Brenny, you got a follow up question no, i actually like to throw out at you guys um as far as, you know, now that we've kind of set that foundation up, um, what would you say some of the premier hurdles um, as far as your belief system goes uh, are when it comes to writing horror? I know, Ron, you talked a little bit about that. Um, let's let's go to you. Kind of let's let's hear you expand on that a little bit. Well, I've, I've kind of I always had a sort of a tug of war between, you know, my faith and horror writer because it's it you feel a little guilty you know when you when you're just pulling out all the stops and and writing some really nasty stuff i mean you think well you know does jesus approve of this and you you pretty much know he doesn't approve of it but but um it's it's just gotten to I, i'll tell you i'll tell you something that i really haven't talked to about a, a, a lot but uh when i stopped writing for 10 years I'll, you know, I pretty much tell everybody it was because Zebra shut down the horror line and, you know, I couldn't find a publisher and everything. But about half of that was because I thought I sincerely thought that God had taken that away from me because he didn't want me to write horror. Um, because I, I, I accepted Christ uh, like in 1996, I accepted Christ in January in October, I lost everything. I lost my writing career and everything. So, so as a new Christian, I, I, you know, that's just that was the first thing that popped in my head that you know, well, you know, God had a hand in that, and and He just didn't want me to write this stuff anymore. But, um, but you know, I don't believe that anymore. John, let's hear from you. What are some of the hurdles that you feel like you've kind of had to think about, overcome, what have you? It's kind of the same thing. It's that juggling act. You know, my influences were Richard Lehman, you know, Jack Ketchum, Brian Keene. These guys wrote some really intense things. 
And of course, when you start out writing, you're emulating your influences. And so it was really hard to kind of balance, well, how can I write, you know, this character swears a lot. How do I write that when I personally wouldn't? Mm-hmm. And it, it's almost a disassociation act because I had to stop and realize if I'm going to be honest about who this character is, that's who the character is. It's, it, it comes back to the we are not what we write aspect of all this. You know, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people that go, well, you're a horror writer, so you've got skulls in the closet and you wear nothing but black and, you know, you sacrifice puppies or whatever. And it's like, no, not at all. In fact, what I've discovered is most horror writers are probably more well-adjusted than anyone else because we are exercising that darkness within ourselves onto the page. And once I kind of got to that and uh, when I did my first book, I had made contact with Ron by that point and I reached out to him on Facebook and I was like, hey, how how do I justify this? You know, being a person of faith and writing what I write. And he actually helped me kind of understand and come to terms with a lot of that, too, just kind of because he'd already been through it himself. Mm-hmm. But it's it's still that act. And there are still I can't write overly extreme scenes because they just don't sit right with me. I can't get it out. I can read it, but I can't create it. And I think that's just that's where the where my limits are. And I think that is down to what my faith dictates that I'm able to write. I think the word that, um, you know, and I'm not sure I've heard it yet, but the word that keeps kind of popping up in my mind is is empathy. Ron, when you when you said that, um, you know, you felt like your career was taken taken away from you and then you eventually had to kind of come to terms with the fact that that wasn't it you know i I feel like you have to almost kind of accept that through your writing you can create characters that you know you guys are not writing surface level stuff where you know bad stuff happens to this person because because they're bad you know it's more deep there's more depth to it than that so you know where you're creating characters that a reader is able to sympathize with empathize with understand and that you know could even help that person through something of a tough time and to me you know that's that's a level of um of empathy that i think that horror writers are able to demonstrate and get into um more than a lot of other genres uh my my opinion anyway um todd i don't really know how to throw this question to you do you have hurdles is there uh, anything you won't do that's Todd. are you just good at everything or uh, well i don't want to brag but I you. No. <laughs> no, I, you know when i was uh when i was when i was younger i had hurdles i really struggled with it because you know i grew up reading stephen king and dean Koontz, and you know uh and kind of moved away from horror in my, my teenage years and early college years to more like Chuck Palahniuk, who's constantly, you know, pushing buttons. And, um, you know, I started reading more, more philosophical stuff, especially for school. And anytime I would write something that seemed like it was approaching, um, you know, at one of those like no turning back, 
you know, there's no coming back from this, Keesling. <laughs> you, you write this, and it's, you know, you, you've, you've crossed that line. Anytime I would get there, I would kind of get a little, you know, worried about crossing it simply because of what would my mom say? What would my dad say? And they're still, you know, they're still really devout. And for a long time, a lot of people in my family really had issues with the stuff I wrote and had trouble separating me from the fiction because their concern was more, where did this come from? Mm -hmm. You know, it's more, we raised you better than this. (laughs) It's like, it's like, this has nothing to do, you know, nothing to do with you, granny. (laughs) Sorry. But, you know, so I, I had those hurdles to begin with and that, you know, even though I don't, I don't really, I don't really consider them hurdles anymore. It's more just like, and I, I, it's more just like, okay, this is an extra, you know, set of tools in my arsenal. So now if I want to horrify someone, now that I can, you know, and the story's going that way, then, you know, I know a little bit, you know, about Christianity and religion that I can kind of, I can push those buttons a little bit if I want to. I don't always do it. Uh, I think I said in a, I think it was the horror aficionados group on Goodreads talking about the midnight and the pentagram anthology. Somebody asked about my, you know, my, uh, my faith and beliefs and all that. And I kind of gave them the reader's digest version. Um, and you know, I, I trying to remember exactly what I said. Oh, Typically, whenever I start to write stories that take place in the South, religion ultimately comes up, <laughs> and that's because I always equate, I equate my my you know my youth with that was a part of it, whether I like it or not. I mean, I my freshman year of high school I was a member of uh, FCA. I don't know if that's still around. Is FCA yes, still a thing? Yes, it is in the South. It is. Okay. Yeah, it okay. depends. Yeah, it depends on where you're at. Okay. So it's like Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Athletes. Yeah. I was like a member of that. I even went to like an FCA conference my freshman year of high school and it just, I just didn't fit it. What I wasn't a good fit. I questioned everything, which didn't make me very popular in that crowd anyway. Cause they're like, you know, the, the argument was always, well, you know, you got to have faith. I'm like, well, I guess I don't then. <laughs> you know, you that try, goes back- uh, that goes back to the people too, though, because yeah, I, exactly. if I look back in high school, half the people that bullied me in high school were members of the FCA. Uh-huh. So same, same. So, you know, I, I guess I kind of Brennan, I, I guess to really answer the question, I mean, I do not have hurdles currently. Uh, my hurdles tend to be more along the lines of, you know, moral or ethic, ethical stuff like talking about suicide, talking about rape, you know, things that are really extreme in my mind. Like I, I, I take those more carefully simply because I don't want to influence a reader to do something to harm themselves or others. Right. Um, you know, so I, I am more careful around those topics than I am about, you know, talking about the church talking about any religion i try to be respectful but you know at the same time also 
you know, I have characters who may be part of the church who may not have the best of intentions. Oh, gee, and, Devil's Creek. I'm just saying. Uh, no. I know, right? <laughs> what's what's a Devil's Creek? I don't know what that is. I think that's a great answer, though, because um, you kind of went back to initial hurdles. And, you know, what, what I kind of took away from that is depending on your belief system, depending on the person you are, you're going to have hurdles in some way, shape or form. And mm-hmm. they might take the shape of, you know, what would my God, what would my creator uh, think of what I'm trying to put down on the page, or they might take the 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 shape of what would my grandmother think of what I'm trying to put down on the page. <laughs> yeah. um, Mercedes, I want to hear from you. Uh, same question. I, I kind of feel like I get it uh, doubled a little bit because I'm a woman, because I'm a, a, a Christian woman. So there's the whole, is a Christian writer supposed to be, or, or a writer of faith supposed to be writing something dark? And then there's the whole, whoa, but she's a woman and she's a mother, and she's writing something dark. So I kind of feel like that's something I have to face a lot. For me, in my faith growing up, we're not supposed to talk about bad things. So we believe in demons. You don't talk about demons. You know, we, you know, believe in like kind of an exorcism or the casting out of demons, but you do not talk about it. So for me, opening up and talking about things that were unpleasant felt like I was crossing a line and that was really hard. Um, You know, and we don't talk about, we don't discuss things that are sexual and we don't discuss like, like you don't, you don't talk about stuff that's hard. You talk about, you know, having faith and pioneering pioneer ancestors and my ancestors crossed the plains because um, way back when it was legal to kill people that were in my church. There was actually uh, governor Boggs did this thing. And if you saw someone who was a member of my church, you could shoot them on site and it was legal. And so that's why the Mormons, you know, got their hand cards. And I still say Mormon because that's how we always tell people what we are because that's what people understand is the word Mormon. But we would um, get our hand carts and walk across, you know, the, the U.S. because we were getting murdered and burned out and killed and raped and all these things. But you don't talk about that. You're just like, they sing songs as they came across the plains. And sure, people died in the snow and we buried them. But there's a wonderful afterlife for us. And there's even a song um, in in our hymn book. And one of the verses goes, you know, and if we die before our journey's through, all is well. You know, so it's just kind of this, you don't talk about it. So, so, and you don't talk about depression and you don't talk about these things. So, I felt that when I was starting to write things that were a little more frightening and a little more dark, I was, I was breaking the taboo, you know, because you don't discuss the darkness and you don't discuss these things, even though we all, even though we all face it, right. We all have terrible things that happen to us, you know, but in my faith, you just don't discuss that. And so that was the biggest hurdle for me is actually opening my mouth in the first place because you don't want to, I've always been taught you don't focus, you have an attitude of gratitude, you know, but you can't just like pray the hurt away, right? You can't pray the depression away. You can't, you know, um, and so those are my hurdles is saying something in the first place, writing about dark things in the first place and being in a sense, having people disappointed in me, like, Oh, like my mother-in-law whom I adore the most wonderful woman. She's like, can't you just write some good Christian fiction? (laughs) (laughs) You might make more just, yeah. And, and I'm like, Oh, I can't, I'm sorry. You know, (laughs) and it's hard for them that I would dare say something 
negative or write the darkness because aren't I inviting the devil in? What am I doing to my children? You know what? You know, my house is decorated with skulls. I don't sacrifice puppies, but, <laughs> you know, it's it's hard because I feel like I don't fit anywhere, right? Like, as a horror writer, oh, look, she's Christian. She doesn't drink. She doesn't do these things. She's not going to come back to the rooms and do this stuff. So I'm kind of on the, the sidelines there. And in the, the world of faith, oh, she's a horror writer. She writes about demons. She burns people to the ground. So it's I don't fit. I will never fit, apparently. I fit with you guys, you know. <laughs> But it's hard. We appreciate your darkness. Thank you. <laughs> the best kind of circle of friends is a close, tight-knit one is my experience in life. So this is really – I'm going to throw this out to whoever wants to answer first. It, has there been a book or even any kind of story really that you've written or talked about that – has gotten backlash where it was really unexpected on your end, specifically related to uh, some something to do with faith or any type of religion topic that I might not have covered so far? Actually, yeah. When I did my first novel, Consequences, of course, my mother was proud that I'd done this, and my parents had never really discouraged me from reading horror or enjoying it growing up, which was a surprise considering how devout they both were. But yeah, I wasn't going to look a gift horse in the mouth. And when I gave her a copy of that first book and she sat down to read it, I, for the next week, I'm just waiting. I'm like, she's going to tear me apart for the content (laughs) in this book. The only thing she told me was she couldn't finish it because I used bad language. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) That was your issue with this? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Todd, how about Devil's Creek? Have you heard Uh, back from anyone back in Kentucky, man? Um, (laughs) well, I was, uh, really hesitant to send copies of the manuscript to my mom and my dad. Uh, my dad, to my knowledge, did not finish it, but not because he you know, wasn't enjoying it. He's just very busy with his career. Um, my mom read it a few times, actually. Uh, she enjoyed it. My dad enjoyed what he read of it. That's the funny thing is that I devil's Creek when it when as far as like religion is concerned is probably the most blasphemous thing I've ever written in terms of like, you know, the Christian church and what have you. And religion in general, I mean, essentially, that's the books about a town being destroyed by fanatical religion, you know, right. spoilers. <laughs> and what's funny is that that's the book that everybody in my family has seemed to, like, support the most. Because, I don't know, I guess maybe they kind of recognize the importance of it in my writing career or they take my writing career more seriously now I don't know. Like I've been writing, you know, I've been writing for God since I was in, you know, taking it seriously since I was in college. So they've been reading a lot of stuff, you know, for you know almost 20 years. And the stuff earlier on seemed to be the ones that like blew their minds and made them ashamed to be related to me. Uh, I Mercedes also got the uh, the the question from one of my aunts about why can't I write, you know, just a good Christian story. Wow, Todd. And, you know, together, you and I, what's funny is that I feel like (laughs) I did write the best, you know, uh, the best Christian story I could. And that's devil's Creek. 
Go buy it, kids. <laughs> Wait. I am all of a sudden itching to read the Todd Keesling version of the Left Behind books. Uh, Well, it it would be one novel. It wouldn't be a whole series, and I definitely wouldn't have named the protagonist Rayford Steele. (laughs) What a name. Uh, Ron, was the Essential Six stuff? Well, I know that was a uh, collection from your early days in the 90s. Were any of those stories ever brought up? by someone and pretty much presented with the same question as Mercedes or, or John or Todd. I, I'm still waiting for a member of my church to get a hold of a copy and, <laughs> and stir something up <laughs> because I'm, I'm still very active in my church. Um, uh, I work with the youth. I, uh, I write the Christmas play every year, not this year when, you know, COVID's kind of got, got that messed up, but uh, um, I'm in the choir and uh, and I have taught Sunday school before, but uh, and the church members know I'm a writer. Most of them know I'm a horror writer. Uh, I think most of them think I'm I write R.L. Stein type story, you know, books, you know, some innocent, you know, uh, family friendly, kid friendly books. But oh, that's no. awesome. But that, <laughs> Those are the people who need to read your book next. <laughs> they get, they get a, those people get a blurb your next book, man. <laughs> but uh, Todd mentioned uh, um, Midnight in the Pentagram. Uh, uh, Ken McKinley, uh, you know, he invited me to come on, you know, uh, contribute a story, and I bowed out of that one because. Uh, because I, I work with children and the youth in the church, I thought, well, if I promote this book and it's got somebody sitting in the middle of a pentagram, you know, that's, you know, that's going to raise a stink in the church. And they're going to, you know, they're going to ask me to, you know, step away, you know, because, um, you know, I guess people, you know, people have set ideas in the church about, mm-hmm. you know, who should be, you know, teaching their children and, and uh, encouraging your children and everything, and and you know, uh, you know, extreme horror stuff doesn't go well with that, because yeah, you know, and I've, I I found that uh, as far as organized religion is concerned, uh, it's not very tolerant of imagination. Um, we've got we've got churches in this area that will not allow their children to believe in Santa Claus. They won't hmm. let them go trick wow. or treat. Yep. Won't let them go trick or treating. Won't let them believe in the tooth fairy or anything because they say, "Well, that's a lie," and I can't lie to my children, you know. But I, I believe that's a disservice and it's almost like child abuse, in my my opinion, because um, I think children need imagination to, you know, there's something essential for a child to believe in, you know. You know, fiction and, you know, there, there's a big, you know, a few years ago, there was a big thing about, you know, don't let your kids read Harry Potter. You know? mm-hmm. And there was a lot of preachers down here preaching against Harry Potter and everything. But, you know, my my boy, you know, he's read every one of them. And, you know, and, uh, you know, that's fine with me. He, he loves The Hobbit. He loves Lord of the Rings. He, you know, I just think fantasy is very, you know, in the development of the child fantasy and and you know stuff like that, so I think it's very important for them. You know? That that's fascinating to me. I mean, you take 
take someone like C.S. Lewis, who was a extremely devout Christian, who wrote, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm-hmm. You know, are are those books not allowed for those kids in those churches you mentioned? I mean, for some, well, yeah. It, wow. Actually, my 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 uh, wife taught a Sunday school class based on Narnia when the movie came out. Because if you watch that movie, I mean, there's if there's a lot of uh, Christian elements in it. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, Aslan, Aslan is Jesus. Aslan is yeah. basically Jesus Christ, and yeah, and uh, and we, I mean, I helped her with the Sunday school lessons. We had like the wardrobe, and we had you know trees, you know Christmas trees up in the the classroom, and the kids loved it. And and then we took them to the movie, and and the church were very was very you know supportive of that, and and I thought that was great, you know. Yeah, it's like it. I remember I was maybe 15, 16, old enough that I was starting to question some things, but not quite old enough to do anything about the questions that I was formulating. And our church youth group was taken to another church to watch this presentation. And what it boiled down to was kind of like what Ron was saying. You shouldn't read Harry Potter because it's about magic. Uh, Captain Planet was bad because they had supernatural forces uh, Care Bears were bad because it showed that their energy came from their centers, which was uh, Eastern religion teaching. And mm-hmm. this, I'm sit. I remember very vividly listening to this and thinking, okay, if I follow your train of logic, I can make anything evil. Right. Chocolate chip yep. cookie dough is evil because it promotes gluttony. Yeah. Uh, puppies yeah. are so evil. Good, though. Yeah, puppies are evil by association because some Satanist might. I hate going back to this. My dogs are going to look at me funny when I get off of this. <laughs> yeah, because by association, Satanists sometimes sacrifice them. Therefore, they're evil. And I'm like, this. You're not doing anything but trying to create drones and people who refuse to think for themselves. And fear. What? Is yeah, you're you're you're. It's fear mongering. Yeah. You don't teach with fear. By the way, I'm going to do a wellness check on your puppies after this broadcast. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will post I will post pictures of all four when we get off of here. They are all fine. We'll need to see those I'm going to need timestamps on those photos, John. <laughs> There'll be timestamps. <laughs> the only the thing that I didn't get when I was learning about religion and yeah, I got that too the Harry Potter thing. You know, I was a kid in the 90s, so that was big for us too. But um, what I just I don't know about you guys, but I never understood why are we learning about these stories in the Bible? People are being bludgeoned to death. There, everything that you can do that's horrible is in there, and it gets lessons. But why is that book okay, but this other book's not okay? Why can't they both teach something like with my kid? I'm gonna raise him to. I'm not knocking anyone's religion, but I want him to think of different points of views. So he can become a well-rounded human, adults, if you will. Yeah. Well, everybody yeah. in the Bible, nobody is likable. Even even the heroes <laughs> in the Bible are ter- you know, do terrible things, and it's 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 hard. But right. I also think that being able to teach your child different viewpoints is kind of a luxury that I feel our parents didn't really have. You know what I mean? Like we have the internet; we see different viewpoints. Right. I'd agree with yes. that. Yes. <laughs> you know, That's it's. A- I don't think that it's their parents are awful. I love no, my, no. Parents, but, but that wasn't, we didn't, we, we were very isolated where we were. That's what we had, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think our youth 
like my daughter, she's a member of the gay straight Alliance because, you know, so many of her friends are, are in this lifestyle and she just, you know, and I'm like, go support your friends, do it, you know, teach people about love. And that at home is a very big, you know, that doesn't go well with some of the family, you know, right. my, my in-laws would really rather that wasn't the case. And I'm like, listen, just because you don't think that you've ever met a person who is gay, <laughs> you know, just because you think that it's like, like my daughter's experiences with people and their experience with people are so different. You know, they're like, well, I don't know a gay person. I'm like, Oh, you do. You just don't know. Right. The, you know? One of, yeah. One of the smartest human beings ever, Leonardo da Vinci was gay. He was a vegetarian. He's everything that like, it's not new. Not a vegetarian. Being, no. <laughs> being, you know, transgender is nothing new either. Well, that's the thing that I also don't get is I have family members that they're, I love them. They're good people. And I won't say who, but one of my loved ones isn't for he not for he doesn't he thinks that being gay is a sin, but he's okay with them, which confuses the ever loving shit out of me. Why can't it just be how your if your spirit's good, then it goes and gets rewarded. If it's bad, it it goes in the fire pit. I can it does at the end. I mean, that's my personal belief. You know what I mean? That's what i think happens good is rewarded evil is punished everything else is like semantics and you know i'll jump onto that i I, in talking about the bible and it's just kind of how i've come to look at the book i mean other than it being a probably the greatest horror novel ever written um you know i say that you know with some sarcasm there's awful lot of horrible things that happen in the Bible. There's, you know, I do not disagree with that at all. It's also a combination of stories and man created stories. You know, they wrote them down, even if they were dictated, you know, from a divine power, it was by man's hand that they were written. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to me, that makes it by its nature imperfect. So I look more at the Bible as a philosophical document, as a means of, you know, living your life, as opposed to it being the, you know, verbatim dictation from God, as a lot of folks tend to view it. So, you know, I look at the Bible no different than I look at, you know, the... uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of Bhagavad I think it's called. Or, uh, and, um, you know, the, the Quran, the, you know, the, uh, the Torah. Um, you look at those documents, you look at going all the way back to, uh, you look at the teachings of Aristotle's, you know, Aristotle, Socrates, you know, there are so many different thing documents that you can draw from from that time period, and I feel like the the Bible is just one of them. You know, that teaches you how to live a good life. You know, the Bible just, in my opinion, goes into a lot more detail as to what theoretically might happen to you if you do not live a good life. Um, and kind of gives like the whole, you know. The whole origin story, if you will. Uh, you know, that's kind of my viewpoint 
on the Bible as a document to live by. You know, there's a lot of stuff in there that I think is fluff. I think that was just written and put in there to further an agenda by someone or or some ones, I should say. Lots of people. But if you break it down to its core, you have a series of teachings that say, you know, don't be a dick. <laughs> Love your neighbor. You know, honor your spouse. You know, respect them. Respect your parents. You know, I don't think those are bad things to live by. You know, they are very universal things, you know. You can respect your parents. You can love them. You know, if they're bad to you, then, you know, they're still your parents. You love them, but, you know, you don't have to do anything, you know, have anything to do with them if you don't want to. You know, it's don't, don't murder anybody. Just don't. It's bad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just don't do that. Uh, you know, it, and that's speaking personally. I mean, I, you know, I grew up with it. I did not just throw out, you know, those, those personal, you know, you know, those, I, those stories of morality and ethics. I didn't throw those out. I still, you know, I still live by those, but, you know, I guess that all goes back to, you know, understanding that it was, you know, written by a man. Or, you know, a human being, you know, an imperfect creature. Um, I know I will give credit growing up. I never heard it referred to as the literal word of God. I always heard it referred to as the inspired word of God. Taken okay. in that aspect, kind of what you're saying is is exactly it, because you do have humans that commission the translations and perform the translations over yes. the years humans make mistakes i mean if you look at the king the king james bible the king james was an asshole you know he there's a lot of speculation that you know bits and pieces of that translation were left on the cutting room floor to further his agenda in that translation that was made available you know and i I'm, i am definitely not a historian you know, I, I right. not a scholar of this stuff. I just, you know, have done my homework over the years. And I feel like that example is I th- feel like that's a perfect example of why, you know, like as you would say, it's an inspired document, why it would, you know, would be used by, you know, certain figures, certain parties certain uh just groups in general to hold sway over a larger population you know i see it i see it as a as a as an ethical and moral philosophical document i also see it as a means of controlling people i have always wondered what was lost in those 2000 you know plus years because it had it wasn't just one language it was i don't know how many but it was multiple languages that you translate it play a telephone game all of us in it are in one line like that mm-hmm. message is going to be different with just six of us in the same room that speak the same language that's why i was i've always thought like well, well what else is missing i've heard there's other chapters that have been lost or you know ripped out of the 
original manuscript, wherever they called it back then. And, and there have. I mean, if you look at the, I think it's called the Apocrypha. Yeah, is that what Judas. The thing if you look Judas? at some of the the other the other scrolls that are not recognized by the Catholic Church, like there's a there is a Gospel of Judas. There's the uh, you know, sixth and seventh books of Moses, supposedly, that outline like all of the they're more like esoteric. They look like something out of Lovecraft, believe it or not. I mean, if you look it up, you, know, you have these documents that are like, here's how you conjure an angel. Here's how you summon a demon and control it. You know, it's all those aspects, those more occult like aspects that you would expect to see in a, in a you know, a religious document of that nature, because, you know, especially the old testament there's some really wicked shit going on here <laughs> you know absolutely and just to throw this out there and someone f- definitely feed off of this but um what i also go back to is in other religions and other documented religions uh books or however you want to word it there's talks of a great flood and there's also recognition of jesus actually being historically a real person which mm-hmm. which is for me personally why i go back to I think that there are a lot of truths to the Bible. I think that there is a lot of truth to Jesus himself. That's why I believe, again, he is this world's savior. <laughs> the universe is very big, so that's why I word it that way. Uh, anyone want to feed off of what I or Todd just said? Well, like I said, I, I spent a lot of time researching other religions whenever I rebelled. And the one thing that I discovered... And it was actually one of the things that helped to kind of guide me back towards Christianity. There are commonalities amongst all religions. Mm. Um, the the window dressing, so to speak, is often different. Um, but there are a lot of commonalities. Uh, in fact, when I was Wiccan, I made the comparison that Wicca and Christianity are not that much different. It's just what names you put on them. Mm-hmm. And the names you put on the specific aspects ticked people off on both sides, of course, but it was what I was discovering as I went through this. And so, yeah, it, it's I think in terms of religion, whatever that commonality is to me made the most sense that that was what was true. And in my case, I saw that paralleling a lot of what I had already been taught analyzed and looked at differently you know growing up in the south and i've said this before there was a lot of what i call casual racism in the south where you would have people go to church on sunday and be talking about loving everyone but then you would hear in conversations on monday or tuesday or whatever just the little things they would say where they're putting down another race or another type of people or even another denomination Mm. And it's mm. like, how is this what you were just talking about yesterday? And that's, I don't know. It, again, it, I think it comes back to those commonalities. And I think it's, I came to a point where when it came to the Bible, I felt like what was supposed to happen is I was supposed to read it. And that was my time to commune with God. And he was to let me know what I was supposed to learn from that. And what I learned from that was kind of what Todd was talking about. Those moralistic lessons, the love your neighbor, treat everyone equally, treat them how you want them to treat you. 
um, you know, be open to understanding that just because they disagree with you doesn't make them a bad person. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, that was just kind of what I learned from it. And that that's kind of what I, what I try to live by now. And, you know, John, real quick, and I'll, I'll shut up so Ron and Mercedes can talk. <laughs> uh, I also want to just point out that, you know, the folks at your church who are giving you a hard time about your hair pointed a picture of Jesus. Oh, you think I haven't? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what, what, what? Is it the white Jesus with blue eyes or? Well, yeah, pretty much all Jesuses had long hair. White and if Jesus you look at long hair. and if you look at Nazarene culture, the men had long hair. So what was that movie where it, it was based on a real a nonfiction book where the kid goes to heaven, doesn't die, sees Jesus. There's a kid across the world paints the real version of him. And it looks nothing like the long haired Jesus. And I've seen that painting and it, it just i don't know if it's in my head or not but it it's it, it's a powerful pain and does anyone oh heaven is for real that's it has anyone seen that movie i have yeah. that came out as a hoax the kid ended up saying that that never happened so oh man <laughs> I, all right oh, she killed your train of has thought man except <laughs> well i was Thanks gonna for ask sense. what people thought about it but that's uh kind of derailed me so why don't you Brendan, I mean, cut. erase that <laughs> It's so <laughs> It's the best well, movie I've ever seen, Patrick. Oh, well. Cl- followed up closely by God is not dead with like Kevin Sorbo or whatever. Right, right. <laughs> with Hercules. With Hercules. So going back to the Bible, I think that's one of the reasons why so many people of faith or people that have grown up with some sort of spiritual background, um, why we are such good horror writers and sci-fi writers and fantasy writers, because we're reading these books, these different religious texts that are just don't take place in, you know, that have all these magical things, you know, a man is killed and rises from the dead. There are demons that come from the other world and, you know, and you take a sacrament and you're cleansed and just all these things that we take as that's how it is, you know, that's how it is. Well, of course a man rose from the dead and he's not a zombie, you know, and, and, and then we go out and can write these like creative, dark or wonderful, mysterious things because we spent our lives just kind of, with one foot in the secular and one foot in the spiritual and kind of get to use those muscles, you know, like it's not hard for me to imagine, you know, demons or whatever, because growing up, we believed in demons. We just didn't talk right. about them. It's, you know, and I, I, I think that is a good springboard for a lot of writers. I mean, there's so many Christians and, and people of different faiths that are amazing writers in those genres. It's just kind of astounding. Cause you think that, you know, a horror, horror writing specifically, you think there wouldn't be a lot of people of faith. Like, you just would kind of be surprised. But I'm amazed how many people are like, oh, yeah, you know. Right. Like, this is yeah. it's what I grew up with, you know. I ate Christ as a kid, so, <laughs> or, or whatever. Every day. <laughs> <laughs> now, do any of you have a message to someone that, because I, I don't really know of many people that talk about this for one reason or another that are horror writers does does anyone out there have a message for someone that may be listening to this that maybe too shy or just didn't know that there were so many 
writers uh, in this genre. Uh, maybe a aspiring writer, if you will, that uh, doesn't know how to handle being faithful, but kind of is balancing, well, what can I write? What can't I write? What would you guys say to those people? Be honest. Yeah. Damn, that's... Yeah. <laughs> be honest to the extent with which you are comfortable doing so. Yes. That's Thank you, probably, John. yeah. Perfect. John Quick. <laughs> John. <laughs> Ron, how about you, man? You've been quiet for a while. What's on your mind? Um, well, you know, I look back at my childhood and and one thing that really helped me, you know, realize that that horror was, you know, okay was because my mother was a great, she was a, a very devout Christian, but she, she loved horror, you know, and uh, she loved to go to horror movies and, and she didn't read horror books. She read the, the goth, old Gothic romance where, you know, the, the lady with the windswept gowns is on the, <laughs> the cliff with the castle in the background. But, uh, but uh, I remember, say my dad wouldn't go to horror movies with her and, and so she drug me to the horror movies, you know, so like uh, at the age of 10, we went to see House of Dark Shadows because we love dark shadows on TV. And mm. and uh, of course, it was different than TV because, you know, Barnabas Collins was uh, projectile bobbing in uh, blood, you know, two miles, you know, so um, <laughs> and she was trying to cover my face and everything. But, you know, I'd already seen it, so <laughs> it was too late. But um and then she, at the age of 12, she took me to see uh, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which really, you know, oh, wow. really screwed me up. <laughs> <laughs> but, Ever uh, since you mentioned that movie, I've heard a lot of fellow horror writers talk I'll about it. To watch it, yeah. Because uh, it's, 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 a, it's a movie where you, you think you know what happens or it... Uh, uh, because it's it's about it's about a lady who's come out of an, uh, an asylum and they move to the country and and then strange things happen and you know there's like vampires and stuff and you really don't know whether it's actually happening or if it's in her mind or you know it's 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 a low budget movie but it, it's it's a uh, it's very effective you know but uh, but uh, you know mama she 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 always she always encouraged my horror writing and. Um, you know, my first novel was based on her um, as a child. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't believe it, but she had the gift of second sight, and and uh, she she had a very uncanny ability to predict people's deaths. And uh, our next door neighbor was handing her a watermelon over the fence one day, and she saw him lying in a casket in his Sunday clothes. You know. And two weeks later, he was dead. But uh, she'd done that time and time again, and and it it depressed her, and 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 she was um, very nervous and depressed because, uh, you know, she had this ability, and 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 she was scared to tell people about it, and and you know she felt, you know, bad about that. But uh, but uh, you know that that kind of you know she she was always supportive of me. She she bought me. Um, uh, famous monster magazines when I was a kid and monster models and uh, my father didn't really understand you know my father didn't understand me a lot about certain things and but uh, you know I guess I was mama's boy so you know yeah <laughs> but 
question about that with with your mother is is that something like your church condones if somebody has some sort of you know ability or gift it was something something she didn't talk about it was okay it was something that the family knew about um she'd had it since she was a child she had typhoid fever and when she came out of the fever uh my grandmother said you know she started showing signs of um, being able to do that you know wow and um, um, I'm waiting for, you know, let's say it skips a generation. So I'm kind of waiting for one of my kids to pick it up. But so <laughs> far. I hope it doesn't require typhoid fever for. No, yeah. I hope not. Right. <laughs> right. Right. But I do believe in stuff like that. I mean, a lot of people don't believe, you know, people can have precognition and, and uh, stuff like that. But, but, you know. I, I believe people, I, you know, it's just like uh, some people believe in ghosts, but I think you can like pick up on an impression of a uh, of some kind of traumatic experience or uh, emotion, you know, that yeah, yes. that still lingers in a in a place. Because I've I've taught, you know, my grandmother told me tons of stories about stuff like that too. So that's interesting that your mom couldn't go to people that are faith driven but if it happens right in front of their eyes there's something wrong with that i that boggles my mind yeah well you know she acted like she was ashamed of it you know that i mean it really bothered her it wasn't like a gift to her it was like a curse to her so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, i mean uh, uh, oh sorry go continue um you know i remember one time my my brother was gonna I think it was on Labor Day. Uh, my brother was like uh, 16, 17 years old. He was going to drive, you know, to town or something. And she told him, you know, don't drive to town. Something's going to bad's going to happen. And he he uh, somebody backed out of the highway in front of him, and, and he had a wreck and broke his nose and everything like that. And she knew that was going to happen. So, um, but uh, you know, that's what I based that first book on. You know. Uh, the, when, I, when I decided to write a horror book, you know, I'd read all these stories, you know, I'd heard all these stories about things she'd done and everything. And, and plus, on my side of the family, there had been a triple murder. So I kind of combined the two, and, and and that's the first book that Zebra uh, published. And what's the name of that book? Uh, Hindsight. Hindsight. In uh, my faith, we believe in, like, spiritual gifts, and um, we read the Book of Mormon is the the religious book. We also read the Bible, but the Book of Mormon is the one. And it like lines out what spiritual gifts we, you know, some some of them that we believe in, like precognition, you know, discernment of spirits and things like that. Like walking in a room and being able to tell, tell if there's something bad or something good there. Right. But at the same time, you're not supposed to talk about it. So it's like, ah, it says, you know, <laughs> oh, here's the, the power of discernment, but shh. You know, so my first book that came out is about a girl that can exp- has, you know, experiences like that, but just can't talk about it. I'm saying, you know, so I, I think it's interesting that we're kind of digging into, you know, like all writers, like the things that bother you, the things that get you, the things that you can't talk about. I mean, that's what we write about, you know, but we have that kind of cool, dark influence, you know, I don't know. I don't know. That's, that brings up a good point. Sorry to cut you off, Brennan, but uh, I'll start with you, Mercedes. 
If you're not comfortable with the question, please say pass. Is there anything that bothers you? And it doesn't have to be with your religion. It could be on society itself. But is there anything that bothers you that you find yourself being drawn back to, uh, if you will, comment on through your stories? All my stories are about society. Um, In my stories, I find myself a lot commenting about people taking advantage of other people. Um, and especially women and girls. So mm. like Little Dead Red, which is a novella I wrote, is about a girl. It's a retelling of, of, of Little Red Riding Hood, and it's about a girl that gets murdered and her mom trying to find justice, right? And I wrote a story that came out this year called uh, The uh, Urban Moon, and it's about a girl, and it's a take on like the Swan Maiden tale where someone takes her coat and she can't, her feathers, and she can't go back home where someone takes her clothes and, and um, sexually assaults her at a club and then videos it and puts it on YouTube or online and how everyone like victim shames her and society and how people can like hurt, how people hurt other people. And then at the end, hopefully there's some strength or resilience, but not always, you know, but that's what I come back to. I always come back to things that are dark and I come back to people that are hurting other people. Because I'm just a friggin' ray of sunshine. <laughs> you actually are. <laughs> she, she's a hit at parties. I am the best. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go with you, John. Um, I, I've made no secret that my hot button topic is bullying. You know, I was bullied a lot growing up. And not even so much a physical thing, just that someone making me feel like I didn't belong. Mm. And, you know, even through early adulthood i i saw that and i think it was less intentional in adulthood it was just how people were conditioned or whatever and how they how they acted but i find myself quite often going back to uh one of the characters in my book is a victim of that exact same kind of bullying and uh i wrote a novel called the journal of jeremy todd which was about a a a guy who it actually drove him into a clinical psychopathic depression and he went off his meds before the high school reunion. And that book was my way of dealing with those high school bullies. Every person in that book that bullied the main character was either indirectly based or a conglomeration of my high school bullies. Mm. And that was my way to cope with it. And that was my first clue that, hmm, maybe I'm not as over that as I thought I was. And the more I've written and the more I'm kind of seeing that theme come back, I think the writing is my therapy for it. And you know what, man? Uh, I'm not saying this is the case, but maybe you'll never get over it. And maybe that's. Oh, I I probably won't. But I've kind of made my peace with that, that. It's at a level where I'm not over it, but I've accepted it and it doesn't dominate my life anymore. And I think that was probably the best I could have hoped for in that situation. Yeah. And so I'm quite content that that's where I've gotten. Yeah. It sounds like it's kind of like the fuel for your fire, which you've used in a very positive way. Yeah. I like Uh, to think so. Yeah. Um, Well, I mean. People like you as a writer and as a person, man. So I think it's working for you. He, he's okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, John. Love you too, Todd. Ron, how about you, sir? Uh, one of one of the things that triggers me is racism. Um, the little town I grew up in. I mean, all the white folks live down in the valley. All the black folks lived up on the hill. Um, it was a clear distinction. Uh, I mean, the black kids at school were put in special ed because, frankly, the teachers and the principal didn't think they were intelligent enough to be with the other kids. I mean, it was awful, you know. And I remember um, when we did Valentine's, you know, we had the little – everybody made their shoebox to have Valentine's, and my mom would make me – valentine's to give to the black kids and i'd have to sneak them in there i couldn't you know if um, the other kids never gave um the black kids any um valentine's but but mom made sure that i had some for them and and it was just um you know i, I grew up with people in my family who were racist and i butted head with put i butted heads with them when i was a teenager a lot and um, and so uh, if you read some of my books like Fear, I mean, you know, there's some uh, some clear, um, you know, stuff about injustice and, you know, racial injustice and everything. Now, you know, I've used the N word in, in that book and, and some people I've had some people say, well, he's racist, you know. But I think to, to write about racism effectively, you've got to depict racism as you know what it is. I mean, you can't show it show once it. and all. Yeah, yeah, you can't you can't pull punches, you know. And and um, and I'm I'm seeing lately, I was it's like, uh, well, let's don't use that word or or you know let's uh, you know let's respect people's feelings and that's good to a certain point. But but when you're depicting evil, you know, it's it's kind of hard for for you to pull your punches and and uh, and just kind of water it down a little bit. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Todd, Todd, hey, I wanna. I, I'm sorry. Uh, real quick, before we go to Todd, Ron, I just want to jump in there real quick. Um, I I I think that there is a huge difference between. Uh, you know, say a 30-something-year-old writer from Massachusetts putting that word in their book versus a, uh, sorry, Ron, but not 30-year-old writer from Tennessee <laughs> uh, putting that word, you know, somebody who grew up in that climate. And I know I've heard, I don't remember where, but I've heard Lansdale talk about the same thing, where when he writes a scene that involves a racist character, I mean, he lives in Texas. I mean, he's seen it. Uh, and, and, and the same thing with you. And I'll tell you, man, just, you know, as somebody who works with uh, young children like that, that story you told about your mom making those Valentines so that you could bring just a little bit of sunshine to those kids days, uh, because it sure as hell sounds like they didn't have a lot of it. Um, that, you know, that breaks my heart. Um, and I could see how years and years later that would be something that sticks with you and needs to come out in some way shape or form through your writing my takeaway from this is that i love ron's mother yeah <laughs> yeah right i had that same thought <laughs> she, if she was still around she'd love to you too sorry oh i mean my my, my mother died a month before my first novel came out 
which oh. was very, which was a very b- bittersweet thing because she I wanted her to read it before she died and she said I want to read it as a book you know and mm. and she never got that chance and, and so that that book you know it's it's got a special place in my heart but it was very bittersweet at the time um you know that first book signing was really hard <laughs> oh sure because you know i you know i wanted to see her come through that door and and see me sitting in that chair but but it never happened though ron when did that come out what year i know it was uh, early 90s 1990 she died in november of 89 so oh the year i was born okay awkward uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Do you know how old I am? I just turned 61, so I'm quite a bit older than you are. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're still younger than my parents by a few years. So, um, I, I do have a question about that book signing. Now, is it – forgive me if this is not the best way to word it, but has it become less difficult to approach and discuss that book and possibly sign that book uh, now? That it's been thirty almost two years later. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. It. Uh, I mean, that's one of my favorite books that I've written. I mean, it's got uh, it's got a lot of family history in it, and mm-hmm. and um, it was you know, I, at the time I wrote it, I was I was you know having little uh, stories published in the small press magazines, you know, and uh, so it was my step up. I mean, um, you know, it was. Uh, you know, be actually having your first book be a mass market paperback by a major uh, New York publisher. I mean, that was just something that didn't happen to a little to a country boy out in Tennessee. You know, but uh, so I'm very grateful for you know what what happened. You know, but uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, I love that book. You know, it's uh, it's but. Uh, Next to figure, I think that's my favorite book that I've wrote. And I know that with, I think it's fair to say the majority of fans of horror books, Zebra has a special place in their heart. It's just one of those eras where I know, because you told us, it was kind of looked down back then. But nowadays, it's one of those things where it's like, that's a that was a great, they had a great yeah. run. Yeah, back then, it was like the red-headed stepchild of, horror publishing you know, but, um you know i you know like i said i think i said this on the last interview without yeah uh i went to the first world horror convention and i was on a panel with uh with charles grant and charles he said uh i've read your stuff it's it's damn good but why the hell are you writing for zebra you know <laughs> <laughs> so oh i thought well thanks you know but uh, but yeah I, I mean everybody you know the big guys were writing for tour and and you know other publishers like that and and the zebra writers were just kind of you know because zebra i mean zebra was mostly in for you know making the money they wouldn't i mean it, it was it's not like indie publishing today where you know people with a great love for the genre or the publishers you know it was just mostly a money-making thing and they were just trying to put out as many books as they could and and in the process it overloaded the system and and brought a lot of uh hard lines down in the process you know along with some other publishers but 
I know that currently, uh, current writers, modern writers that were zebra writers is uh, you, Lansdale, um, Edward Lee, and I feel like John Skip was, but maybe I'm completely off base with that. I, I, there's probably more, but I can't well, I think, think of them. Skip was a little bit after. Well, you know, he. Um, I think I don't I forgot where I, him, him Skip and Spectre. I don't think were on Zebra. They were on think, like Berkeley or something like that. Okay, like that. Yeah, it was close. It had to be close. Like year from the years that they shut down to when they came along. Okay, uh, so moving on, Todd. We did not get to you, sir. Patrick, real quick, I do want to say that uh, you know Ron is an honor to share a publisher with you now. Oh Thank yes. You. Ken McKinley, we get paid yes. every time. Oh, yes, absolutely. I get to be part of that party, too. <laughs> yeah, I say, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, like Ken and uh, Paul Gobrich with Thunderstorm. and mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, we've got some good publishers out there who just love, you know, they, they respect the authors and yeah. and they love the genre. And, and you didn't have that back, you know, with the mass market publishing, really, you know. Um, 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 you didn't have that respect. I mean, they saw your stuff as a commodity, and and that was about as far as it went. But uh, but now, you know, you know, when I came back to writing in 2006, I, you know, I had a, a lot of say so with what was going to be on the cover, and you know, I got to keep my titles. Um, and um, I mean, it's just been a, a great association with every um, indie publisher I've worked with, you know. Uh, Brennan will be joining the rank two. Me, Mercedes will be the only ones that have not been published <laughs> with right. Silver Shamrock. Wow. Brennan. <laughs> Brennan's. Cool to be, be hated, Patrick. How does that feel? I'm used to it. <laughs> look, look, look at my face. It's the type of face you just want to punch. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, as someone who designed your podcast logo and had to look at your face for hours, yeah. <laughs> That's harsh, man. I don't know how to retort to that. That's okay. I love it. <laughs> <There> is, <laughs> <me too. laughs> um, I, I don't know what to say. Brennan, go. <laughs> and, and moderately on that subject, uh, congrats, Ron, to uh, being the first uh, acceptance for the next uh, big Silver Shamrock anthology. Oh, yeah. I forgot yeah. all about that. Holy shit. That's, uh, that's months away from open submissions. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've... I've yeah, he 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 told me what the the theme was gonna be this time, and you know, I I guess I just sat down and I wrote this story in about two hours, you know, and oh, wow. sent it to him, and he he kind of sat on it a while, and I thought, well, he's not gonna read it till people start, you know, he has open submissions, and and the other day he he said, well, hey, congratulations, you got the first spot, so so I'm really happy about it, you know. Very nice. Congratulations. Yeah, definitely. That is awesome. Um, I still wish I remembered what I asked three people, and I can't remember to ask Todd, but it was something to do with your a book that you wish that something fill in the lines, guys. It's like Mad Libs. Uh, you know what? He said he wanted to punch you in the face, so, I mean, it's <laughs> if you want to skip him, I'll understand. I mean, it, oh, it's... what thing keeps coming up in his work, whether it's related to religion or not? Thank you. That's what it was. Thank you, sir. John you Quick know, to the rescue. <laughs> God, John Quick, man. That's Random that guy. facts. They come up at weird times. 
<laughs> Patrick, I would say I, I, I would, you know, punch you in the most loving way possible. <laughs> I need photographic proof so I can hang that on my wall. In that face that he loves. Yeah. Uh, I'm so, really, I'm really confused. When I first meet you in person, I don't know if I'm gonna run away or uh, give you a hug. I should warn well, you. Running away is tall. the standard thing when you meet Todd for the first time. <laughs> I'm used to that. Usually it's small children that run away, but oh, now no. I'm used to that. Uh, no. So question was, you know, what is one thing in my books or my stories that I keep going back to, regardless of whether it's got something to do with religion or not? Yeah. Okay. Well, I would say that, you know, Mercedes, Ron, and John, actually, all their answers, you know, I kind of are applicable. I mean, I, you know, I try, I tend to write about society in one way or another. I tend to write, you know, about bullying, and I tend to write about racism and bigotry. And, you know, it may not always be apparent, but and it may not always translate to the finished product. But, you know, I know what when I sit down to write a story, I kind of have an idea of what I'm going for. So, like, uh, and I sorry to keep beating a dead horse, but Devil's Creek comes to mind because, you know, for those who have read it and this isn't really a spoiler per se, but the town it's based on has a really deplorable history of racism it's a town i grew up in so i incorporated that into the story of devil's creek uh because and i i tried to avoid it i really tried to avoid it and mercedes i'm sure you remember me sending you that chapter because i was nervous as hell to even have included it in the manuscript and you know ultimately it was something i felt strongly about and i needed to say it and you know, that that's something that I foresee myself revisiting in the future, especially given our current social climate. Um, so, you know, beyond those three things, I mean, I don't know, like monsters. <laughs> uh, maybe, you know certain existential themes you know like you know who are you what are you doing with your life that sort of thing <laughs> uh you know the more abstract and existential ideas uh i also tend to tackle you know it, it, get, it gets kind of hard to explain without going into detail and spoiler territory so just take my word for it that's fair Brandon. Just trust you. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just trust me. You know, I'm looking at, at all the stuff that uh, I wanted to make sure we went over tonight. And even though a lot of the questions that I have written down didn't get asked directly, they got answered anyway. Things like, you know, motivation. Why do you, why do you write what you write, and how does that tie in? I mean, pretty. We've heard pretty much everybody touch on that. So uh, something of a random question, uh, back to our talk on, um, on the Bible. I am curious how you feel about incorporating biblical themes, characters, uh, specific stories and parables into your work. If it's something that you steer away from, if it's something you lean into, or if it's something you're somewhat indifferent toward. Um, John, can we throw it to you first? Uh, 
it's not something I think that I'm conscious of. I, I'm not a, I don't avoid it, but I don't go looking for it. Um, I will say I've written uh, a weird Western novella called Damnation Trail, where the main character was the the son of a preacher who was the son of a preacher who his family gets killed and he ends up making a deal with the devil for revenge, knowing full well the impact of what he's done. He doesn't realize it was the devil until it's too late, of course, because that's how we're taught the devil is. He's a trickster. And it actually spawned a sequel where he's trapped, but he's trying to find a way out. What I discovered writing those was a lot of the questions about faith that I had, I was tackling through him. And so that brought in a lot of, of not necessarily the biblical stories and things, but the teaching methodologies that I had been exposed to growing up about how you know, doctrine gets taught to you in a, in a church and the rebelling against that and then trying to find your way back. I think that's probably the closest I've come to addressing any of it like that. But if the idea came up, I certainly wouldn't shy away from it. And I do know in the sequel, I, there is an angel watching out for him. And through the character of that angel, I got to kind of play in that, that world a bit and how to portray them so it's probably yeah, the closest kind of, i would come to it kind of explore the uh, uh, the themes present through that that's that's really interesting uh ron same question how, how how do you feel about incorporating different kind of um aspects of biblical stories and characters into your work i mainly try to distance myself from it when i write horror but I mean, every now and then it, it comes through, and, and I had readers tell me, you know, you know, that they see certain, you know, like symbolism and 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 faith-based stuff in there that maybe I didn't see when I wrote it. That that you know was you know maybe under the surface. So, you know, when I wrote Blood Ken, the vam- the main vampire is a is a mountain preacher, you know, who who um, becomes a and he comes back from uh, one of his descendants, digs him up, and he, he tries to, um, you know, turn his his his, whole, his descendants into a, a like an unholy congregation. And uh, one of the first one he he um, he um, turns into a vampire is is a Baptist preacher. So you know. Um, but but the thing is, there were other characters in there that were truly good. You know, you could tell which characters, you know, had been, you know, like uh, almost like false teachers, you know. And, and and then the protagonists were like, you know, they were imperfect people. They wouldn't, you know, per se religious, but they, you know, they, they were the heroes of the books, so. Uh, every now and then, you know, I touch on stuff like, like in uh, Essential Six stuff. There was Snake Handler, where, where you know, the preacher comes into town and, and starts handling snakes, and it turns out he's, he's got more of an agenda than, you know, mm-hmm. than they, than the congregation thought there was, and, 
And there's one in the bunch that knows what's going on because he had seen it when he was a child. You know, he's he's an old man now. But, but yeah, you know, I don't consciously, you know, explore that a lot of times. But, you know, it does come through every now and then. I like that idea of just kind of exploring um, almost ingrained ideals. Um, and I, I really heard that in John's answer. But, um, you know, even then in Snake Handler as well. Todd, I am super interested in your answer because of the uh, one of the stories I know you're working on right now. I don't know if you how much you can tell us about it, but uh, you know, I, I am writing a story right now that is from the perspective of Judas Iscariot. Uh, I've been doing a lot of uh, a lot of biblical research lately. Oddly enough, it's completely you know unplanned for this uh, this discussion. Um. But yeah, I, I have been looking into that, and it's fascinating to me because you don't really have a reasoning for Judas's motivations. Why did he do what he does? There's not really a clear answer in the Bible. So that's an opportunity for me to explore that. Um, you know, why does a guy who is at one point, extremely devout and following uh, another man who says he's the son of God, go from being a you know a disciple of his to betraying him, that leads ultimately leads to his death and fulfills what is essentially a prophecy. So, uh, you know, I I can't really go into the story because it's not done <laughs> and it's committed <laughs> elsewhere. So anything else I would say about it would constitute a spoiler, and I don't think uh, John Taft would like that very much. <laughs> so um, he's cool uh, with it, man. We got oh, him on yeah, the line. Of course. He said it's fine. All yeah, us bald uh, guys can tell it, you know, <laughs> teleport our thoughts to each other. <laughs> I, you know, as far as like using those elements from, you know from religion and, and faith and what have you in, in my fiction. I mean, there are pieces of my upbringing in the church that has, have come through. Uh, first comes to mind is, uh, my novelette saving granny from the devil, which has is semi autobiographical and paints the devil as a agent of God, essentially. Um, and in that you have a very, young you have a protagonist who's reliving these memories of himself as a young child asking these fundamental questions after a day in sunday school so you know why does the devil tempt jesus in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights like why you know you're looking at the nature of the devil and you start asking why and why and why and that you start running into those walls of, well, take it on faith, take it on faith. Well, I'm a fiction writer. I'm going to make shit up. So, <laughs> so, uh, so you know, I, I that comes to mind. Um, I'm not, I don't shy away from using it, if anything. I think it gives, uh, in the right context, it gives some authority to what I'm talking about, or at least that I, I have a little concept of what I'm talking about. Um. You know, I I'm pretty sure in Devil's Creek I mentioned someone having a you know a night you know their own personal night in Gethsemane, and 
you know, I, I tend to go back to that and refuse that in, you know, almost everyday conversation because, you know, that to me epitomizes a great struggle of mind. You know, you have Christ in the garden contemplating his own death and asking his father to take it from him. Please spare me of this. And, you know, he in, you know, in the face of silence, he says, well, if that's what you want, then, you know, so be it. But the amount of sure willpower it would take, you know, if someone in that position, like if you you or I were to put ourselves in that position, what would you do? You know, think questions like that. Uh, I tend to think about that and how I can incorporate that into fiction into stories, especially when you take a character's situation and how does that apply? Um, you know, it, it makes for a good descriptor, <laughs> a good metaphor. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I do use that stuff in my work, if anything, to give it an extra bit of context. One might say uh, an extra angle of the parable I'm trying to tell. See what I did there? <laughs> well played, sir. Thank you. <laughs> I'm still kind of dwelling on the um the, the Judas thing as I guess I never really thought about it from that angle before. You know, we we kind of we almost kind of uh satiate ourselves with saying, "Oh, he did it for money," but you're right. You, 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 there's, there's got to be more to the story. Um, even if it's just, it is money and there's a certain inner turmoil, or if there's something else that we don't know that drove, drove him to go looking, looking for the money, that, that extra piece of the story. Yeah. And he felt so guilty about it. He gave the money back or tried to, and there's some, you know, discrepancies depending on what book, you know, you're taking it from, but, you know, he it is, you know, kind of universally accepted. You know, he tried to get the money back, you know, whether he was struck down by God or hung himself or, you know, whatnot. You know, that's debatable, but he tried to get the money back. He felt really horrible about it. So, you know, I, I like to look into things like that that don't have clear answers and ask what if. Yeah, well, what if Judas was doing the right thing? You know, what if Jesus told him to do it? You know, what if that, that's not how the story goes, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but there is, you know, going back to the Apocrypha I mentioned in the Gospel of Judas, you know, what's left of it, because it's mostly just tatters, you know, of, of bits and pieces of pages that were found. There are some translations that scholars are, I mean, scholars argue about it, all this crap, but, you know, there are certain translations that scholars think that, you know, it's basically Judas's testament of why he did what he did. And that it was because Jesus came to him and explained to him his, his role in all this, because without Judas, you don't have Christ getting, you know, getting, you know, sold out. And, you know, going before the courts and ultimately getting crucified. You know, Christ can't rise and redeem humanity 
if he doesn't die first, you know? So Judas is kind of like that. He's that catalyst in the story. There's your story with uh, Mercedes to make both your aunts happy. Yay! Yes. <laughs> no, no, my my aunt's not going to be happy about this one. <laughs> <laughs> also, I'm glad you didn't spoil it. We were lying. Taff would have been pissed. <laughs> really pissed. Yeah, he sent a cease and desist right now. Brendan, are you familiar with Jesus Christ Superstar, the the musical? <laughs> well, uh, like I mean, in theory, is- yes. Okay, because I love it. It makes me cry every time, but it is basically from Judas's point of view. So it's mm-hmm. really interesting. I love it. I love it. A lot of people find it, you know, sacrilegious or don't don't like it. It offends a lot of people, but to me, it just is wonderful. What's you know, one person's sac- sacrilege is another person's sacrilish, sacrilicious. No. Oh boy, sacrilicious. <laughs> That's going to be our our co-edited christian novel (laughs) that's our anthology mercedes you think ken mckinley will publish it (laughs) sacrilegious yeah if i talk nice to him he might so (laughs) there was and there still is this game on you can get on google play called jesus vr uh jesus virtual reality I know when that first came out, it was getting a lot for the same thing. Like there were a lot of fun people. Uh, it was. It's not like a game where it's making fun of religion or nothing. It's just it's supposed to be you living in the life of Christ. Now beyond that, I don't know what the game entails in the in the details of the actual plot, but it's not meant to offend people. But there, I've seen a lot of angry people with things like that. So I don't. Probably. I don't think you'll. A lot of walking in that game. Yeah, like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of walking. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Pat, you didn't do your research properly on that game. Um, uh, you you got to be prepared to tell us what it's all about. Um, well, I can read the description right now if you'd like. <laughs> oh, that's fine. We can skip I that. I think we should have a group playthrough. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Mercedes, same question. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny that the person that uses the Bible the most in his work is Todd. But um, for me... <laughs> wah, wah. Wah, wah. <laughs> my first thought was, no, I don't use the Bible in my work at all. But when I when I thought about it, um, good versus evil, um, I do tend to write about people giving up their life for somebody else, which, you, you know, is, is based on Christ, I guess. But... I would say most of my work seems to be informed by fairy tales, which are also based on some of the things in the Bible, the, you know, the more morality mm-hmm. things like that. But yeah, so I guess my innate beliefs come through and that I believe that if there's like a darkness, you need to fight it. Um, and, and not, I, I believe, and I write characters that the big bad is coming, you know, whether, whatever it is, and you need to stand up and fight it. You can't just let it. And and the, the big bad in my stories usually will converse with you like, you know, Satan's usually conversing with Christ or, you know, the demons and the bad people in the, the Bible are always quite mouthy. You know, they're never like, I'm going to silently do things. They're usually like, ah, ha, 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 you know, and, and so maybe that comes through and I that personal one on one with it. But that's probably it. Just my beliefs shining through maybe a little bit of my word usage. Because, you know, I, I grew up reading scriptures, and so I'll say things that just, you know, 
come come from the Bible turns of phrase people will point out are strange, and I'm like, whatever, leave me alone, man. I'm ready. <laughs> but that's it. So you're you write like instead of like this object is several feet away, there's several it's several cubits away. It's several. <laughs> <laughs> and i'm offended we didn't begin this this meeting uh, right with prayer <laughs> well we can't exactly hold hands mercedes we don't do that that's weird todd <laughs> my friend's weird and creepy dad would have family prayer and he'd make everyone hold hands and he always sat by me when i was over for sleepovers and would hold my hand and it just skeeved me out did Thanks. he have really sweaty hands yes he did he was also oh a oh like, <laughs> How would you describe his hands, Mercedes? Hi, teacher. Sweaty and chubby and and moist. Moist. <laughs> oh, Christian. Christian Bale's back. His <laughs> hands were a bit damp. It was. It was creepy. No one wants to hold hands with their teacher. No. Yeah. Not even Batman. I can't do it. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Batman might. <laughs> Batman always wears gloves for a reason. Because <laughs> of Robin. It's kind I don't know. What, I don't know what that meant. So I was hoping someone would fill in the place. Have Robin weird sweaty, sweaty hands. <laughs> well, now you've grossed me out. I'm so skeeved. Thanks a lot. Um, whose turn is it? <laughs> We're all done. We, new question. It's your turn. It's your turn, Pat. I'm not a guest. <laughs> we all answered it. Okay. <laughs> so, I'd like to know, and I'm sure other people would like to know, what are you currently working on? What works can you discuss? Uh, Todd, we want you to talk about Taft's project. Yeah, I, I want to know at the end, right now. No, can't do that, sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, other than the you know undisclosed project I'm working on, uh, I'm also about... 50,000 words into a novel I started writing for NaNoWriMo. I can't keep up with John Quick, unfortunately. <laughs> that, yep, so I was going to bring that up. He's a machine. Uh, but, you know, I did manage around 2,000 to 2,500 words uh, on average a day. Um, so I hit 53,000 by the end of November. Uh, book's not done. It's called Spiders in the Lattice. Uh, it's kind of all over the place currently in first draft form, but if I had to sum it up, I'd call it an apocalyptic Lovecraftian love story. Ooh. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Speaking, speaking of John Quick, you like, I listen to a lot of podcasts. One of them is the Mono Method with yeah, Armand Rosamalia. <laughs> yeah. And you, you know where I'm going with this for those that don't listen to it. I check it out. It's like, it's a fun show. They talk about you a lot. I think they like like you, man, because they just don't yeah. stop pranking about your ability to do what Todd just said. You are the master at NaNoWriMo. They're not picking so, on John. They're picking on me. I got these this year. Somebody had it in 13 days. It took me 16. Holy shit. Was it Tim Meyer? No. In fact, what made me over 50,000, I was telling my wife, I was like, yeah, Tim Meyer is going to hit it like in a day or two. She's like, well, you can't let him do that. You've got to do it first. <laughs> That's a good wife. Really? Really? So I sat down and wrote for about six hours and hit the 50,000. I was like, there, are you happy now? <laughs> 16 days, you hit 50,000 words. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no no wonder why you brought up all the time. And geez, Louise. Um, okay. <laughs> Shut up, John. <laughs> it was a short story, okay? 
I did it once last short year. Short story. What was it? Two hundred thousand words for a short. Uh, that's a piece of flash fiction for me. Actually. Oh, that's flash fiction. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. So, John, what what's uh, new that you can discuss that is on the horizon or recently? Uh, on the horizon, I had a limited hardcover come out through Thunderstorm called Crimson Springs. Uh, came out during the summer. It was my first attempt at cosmic horror. Um, that is going to be coming out through Bloodshot Books shortly after the first of the year. I don't have an exact date yet. Um, for everyone who loved Lyd Hansen's work on the limited edition cover, that she's doing the the paperback cover as well. Dude, so, she's awesome. She's nice. awesome. I love Lynn to death. She's great. Yeah. Oh yeah, she she is awesome. Her cover um, on the new Weird Tales uh, issue is just yeah. stellar. Yes, but that's the next thing I've got coming out. I've got a couple of things in the pipeline for next year that I can't talk about yet. Um, and as far as what I'm working on now, I'm kind of in the same boat Todd is. I did not finish that book during November. Uh, I ended up having to take a about a week off at the beginning of this month or a few days, whatever it was to work on some edits that I had due, And I'm now getting back into that to finish it. It started as a reimagining of the first original novel I ever finished that no one will ever get to read as long as I am alive and have anything to say about it. Um, All right. So we have to kill you. <laughs> hey, you got to deal with, you got to deal with Wiley young after I'm dead. He's the one handling my, my literary estate right, and he has right. very explicit instructions not to let this out either what if he gets killed so but we're gonna have to steal it then it would be on my wife and uh oh no we're not gonna joke about yeah, that i was gonna that, that's what i thought yeah that's not okay <laughs> but uh, <laughs> i i kind of took the story i had and modified it where it was a guy goes back to his the small town he grew up in in South Alabama. His father was very abusive and he had left home and he goes back for his father's burial and discovers his dad had realized there was what looked like a Wendigo in South Alabama where one isn't supposed to be, according to Native American legend. Nice. That sounds awesome. Well, yeah. what it turned out that I've discovered my dad passed in 2015 or no 2005 15 years. Apparently I wasn't as over it as I thought because the first 80,000 words of this has been the main character going through dealing with burying his father and all the emotions and things that are coming up uh, through that. And there were times where I was like, wow, okay, April 2nd, 2005, it is not that day, but it feels like that day. Yeah. So now I'm actually getting into the part where there's a Wendigo or whatever it is. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Uh, Ron, you, sir. Well, after a couple of years of procrastinating, uh, you know, 2020 has pretty much kicked me in the sea of the pants and maybe <laughs> do something. And, and I've had three books come out in the last three months. So, you know, I've had the Central Six stuff, the Halloween store, and now I've got the uh, Seasons Creepings is out. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really getting, you know, back into writing the short stories a lot. And, and I'm working on a right now I'm working on a um, Irish Gothic. It's called Irish Gothic Tales of uh, 
Celtic horror. And I'm, I'm, I've kind of delved into my my ancestry and, and my, my love for Irish folklore. And and, and that's going to be like eight stories, you know, another small collection. Um, Zach McCain's doing another great cover for it. So, so I'm looking forward to that. And then I'll be working on the sequel to Fear, which is called Fear Eternal. Um, and then I'm going to be doing a five-volume horror western serial for Thunderstorm over the next three years. Um, it was a, it was uh, it was an idea I had back in 1992 that I pitched to Berkeley, and uh, it, it, they they were interested, but they didn't pick it up. So so uh, you know, with the resurgence of you know. Uh, interest in horror westerns i thought it was a good time to to you know dust it off and see what i could do with it you know so so that'll be called dead eye and and we'll have five volumes of that over the next three years and so i've got a lot to work ahead of me so and uh wow. rod you you do quite a well recently you've done a lot of work with crossroads uh crossroad press haven't you <laughs> they're that, um yeah that they put out all my uh, e-books and audio books and, and lately they've been doing a lot of paperbacks. So and, uh, they're, they're good to work with and they're fast to work with. You know, I mean, I only had the idea to do the Halloween store in August and we got it out in October. So, <laughs> wow. So that's, you know, it's pretty fast. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's like self-published fast. Yeah. Yeah, just, it is. Now there, anyone answer this please but is that the press isn't that the press that's coming out with the reissued version of um layman's a writer's tale i believe it is i don't I know i think so but i can't remember for sure i was hoping someone knew because i thought I, I i swear that couldn't remember if it was another press but uh patrick we are not google okay all right eh, i got google i should have just asked google <laughs> my bad mercedes your turn yeah so um we, I just edited an anthology that dropped in the middle of the pandemic called Arterial Bloom that Todd has a story in and did the cover for. So that was a big, that was a huge deal for me because that took a really, really long time, a lot of work. Um, and I am, that what I'm excited that's coming out next is um, we're doing a graphic novel of Pretty Little Dead Girls, uh, a, a novel of murder and whimsy. We're doing a graphic novel and we're doing it in three parts. And the first part will be coming out very soon. It was supposed to be out by now, but you know, COVID kind of threw a wrench in everything. So yeah, it's, yep. Um, yep. it's a little bit later, but it's, it's so good. Orion Zangara is doing the art for that. And it's, it's just gorgeous. So, yeah. Uh, and I'm working on a novel that I've been wanting. I put off for years to do my commitments and I'm working on it. And I, I got, super stuck it right now it's called um breathe a burning and it's about like a basically a town that cannibalizes itself which seems to be one of my themes but i couldn't figure out i got myself stuck in it and couldn't figure it out and last night at about 3 30 in the morning i was texting myself notes about it because I, I don't sleep and i figured it out <laughs> i figured out how i wanted it to end and i went <gasps> and my husband was like huh? <laughs> 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 I go back to sleep, but I figured it out and I'm so excited to, in fact, I'm going to, after dinner tonight, I'm going to get started on it and wind that thing up. And I'm also trying my hand at one of my very few sci-fi short stories. I was invited to something and I don't do a lot of sci-fi. 
but um, I'm really intrigued. And so I'm working on one right now. And that's super cool. It, it feels good to kind of stretch my wings in a different genre because horror and fantasy is very, and I do a lot of magical surrealism. So it's like, Oh, that just happened. That's how it is. And sci-fi has like <laughs> rules yeah. <laughs> and yeah. like clockwork and <laughs> things that have to be specific. So that's different for me. So that's cool. <laughs> now, is there anything that anyone here wants to mention that we, cause we're wrapping up now. So I don't want to just say we're done um is there anything that anyone wants to talk about mention suggest uh throw out there for people that they should read anything the floor is yours i'll take that nobody, as a no nobody wants the floor man <laughs> okay the floor is bad uh where can <laughs> the floor is lava i've heard of lava yeah yeah <laughs> where can people follow you uh mercedes I'm on Facebook, Mercedes Murdoch Yardley. Don't go to my author's page. I never check it out. Um, I'm on Twitter <laughs> as at MercedesMY, and my blog is MercedesMYardley.com. So I'm very active online. Very good. Ronald Kelly, where can people follow you? Uh, RonaldKelly.com. Uh, my blog is um, um, Southern Fried and Horrified. And, uh, I love that know, Catch, you can catch nice. me on Facebook, uh, Twitter, under at uh, Darky uh, Dixie. Now well, it's uh, Ronald Kelly Four. Um, Instagram is uh, at Dixie Darkin. Uh, so I'm all over. Just just look for me and you'll find me. John Quick. Uh, I've got a website, JohnQuickFiction.com. Uh, I am on Facebook. Um, Kind of like Mercedes said, I've got an author's page, but don't bother because I think I've <laughs> updated it last about nine months ago. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at John D. Quick. Todd. Uh, John, real quick, is it is it quick fiction? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was a stupid joke. Hi, I'm Todd Keesling. My website is toddkeesling.com. Uh, yeah. I'm on Twitter as well, Todd underscore Keesling. Uh, that's usually where I'm most active. Like everybody else has said, don't bother with Facebook. It sucks anyway. Yeah, uh, take that, Zucker. I am on Instagram as well, <laughs> at Todd Keesling, all one word. And I'm also on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Todd Keesling. So check it out. This has been really fun. Uh, this really set the stage for if Brennan and I want to come back to a roundtable discussion in the future and i think it's safe to say we do this is uh it's been a lot of information and educational things that you guys threw at us so i, I appreciate it so thank you so much for joining us this is a pleasure yeah, oh, yeah this was awesome. great thanks for having us absolutely we want to have all four of you back on probably individually um <laughs> who knows could be a tag team of uh two or three of you or four you never know brennan as always <laughs> Thank you for joining me. It's been a blast. And uh, so this will be out December 14th. That is uh, this upcoming Monday. Followed by that, we will be talking to S.A. Cosby on the 17th. Followed by that will be the very last episode. So stick around. Uh, let us know what you think about this and follow everyone that was on here today. Listeners, thank you for joining us as always. We are in your mind. We are all around. You are now leaving Deadhead Space. Okay. <laughs>
<laughs> oh dear. Wow. I didn't know we had Batman in the uh, chat today. Hello, Batman. I'm aware of your sexuality now. And, uh, I didn't think I would be. Jeffy's sexuality is Batman. <laughs> John, is that a skeleton with a plague doctor mask in the background? Yes, yes, it is. That's awesome. I bought the the plague mask. My wife brought the skeleton home for me. Excellent. Yeah. Good to see you. Hey, Ron. How you doing? Hey. How y'all doing? Christmas, <laughs> Ron. Hey, he's in he's in Wonderland. That's festive oh. there. It is. Yes, yeah, so we are very festive in Tennessee down here. Is there anything that you guys do not want to talk about? Is there any subject that I should note? Can we avoid politics if possible? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm going to talk about Christians and politics, Todd. Okay, well, I was going to keep this civil, but if you want to go there. I'm so happy to be here. Okay, bye. (laughs) Welcome to Dead Headspace. You can find us on Apple. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Please put this in the bloopers at the end. Okay. Right. Brendan, do you remember? (laughs) Uh, who are you guys? I don't remember. My, my name is Michael David Wilson. That's Bob Pastorello. Here. This is hard. <laughs> I already talked to those guys this year. You whore. Uh, you traitor. <laughs> I, I do want to say. I know it had to do with. Uh, uh, what, oh, no, I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I know what it was. Well, 